everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Joel Smith from Just Fly Performance. Joel and I are going to be discussing a variety of topics and philosophies relating to acceleration, deceleration, and change of direction, and how that applies to your training and your rehab program. So great episode today. I know you're going to love it. Joel, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Dan. So for people who might not be familiar with you, or maybe they've never heard of Just Fly Sports, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the stuff that you do? Yeah, um, I wear a few hats. <laughs> Sometimes someone just asked me what I do in the neighborhood the other day, and I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a coach for, uh, first and foremost. I've been coaching uh, both, like as you could say, strength and conditioning. I'm still not sure the right term for that specific job description yet. Um, strength and fitness, uh, and then track and field uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, did all the school stuff and the undergrad and masters, and coached track for six years. Worked at UC Berkeley or Cal for uh, eight, seven, or eight years. Sometimes I lose track. I, I've been doing my own thing recently. Uh, I'm working in the private sector. I coach a lot of people online now, uh, but. I do uh, podcasting, just like performance podcast. Uh, my interest really, I guess that, but just saying what I do doesn't necessarily tell you a lot. It's like, oh, you coach some people. <laughs> cool. Like I, for me, the, I think the thing that's maybe unique that would help you to know me more uh, for people who are listening is I've just, I've been someone who's been completely obsessed with human performance from an objective standpoint for a long time. How do you jump higher? How do you sprint faster? How do you lift more weights? Um, and I went at it from a very, a standpoint where I was, it was just me, um, researching stuff for a long time before I got into having an actual coach. Like even in high school, I didn't really have a coach who was telling me that much. I had to figure most of the stuff out myself and I am wired to want to do that anyways, but I think it was interesting. And I've talked with other coaches who are kind of in the same boat that coming up into it that way really develops your intuition with what works and what doesn't, because I think there's a lot of dogma in the industry. I know we'll get into that with the speed training type stuff where people just believe it because someone in authority told them it. So it must be true. And maybe they threw in some stuff about physics that sounded high level intellectual and interesting. And, but to be honest, there's a lot of times we just get very reductionist and we just believe things because we're told it. And so I think at least coming up from that baseline of having to go through that process myself, trial and error, it gave me a very good intuition on what really matters and works. And I, so I always took that into the athletes I trained, worked with. Um, I've, I've had also been able to work with a lot of really, not that it honestly means anything, but what high performing individuals, people who have been Olympians and world record holders. But to be honest, though, anyone can work. It doesn't necessarily take an intuitive, talented process to work with someone on a high level. I, I look more at how did you do with the everyday athlete, the everyday individual? How were you able to help them reach their goals? How much did you help an athlete who's maybe mediocre improve? And I value that very heavily. Um, so yeah, before I ramble more, just that 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 is uh, kind of the key feature, I guess, of my thought process. And then running the podcast was that big mind opening experience where now I am continually working with the minds of other coaches and adding on and adding on and adding on. Um, and 
kind of maybe as true to the the, the hermit mentality doing it in my own way <laughs> um which i think is important for my learning process and might not be the ideal for everybody but that's been the ideal for me to to really expand my viewpoint on this whole human performance thing pioneering your own path forward in a way and like you mentioned you've been kind of going through almost day to day like each day is a new experiment in the lab finding what works, finding what doesn't work based on experience. And as you mentioned, you've had a little bit of success, I would say, doing it. So, uh, you know, I certainly think you're a great individual to chat with about anything and everything related to speed. And when it comes to training speed, I continue to see this obsession with top speed. How fast can someone run? And I think there's good reasoning behind that. You know, if you can hit a pretty fast speed, then you're probably going to cover, say, a 40-yard, uh, you know, run test a little bit quicker than someone else. And maybe that bumps you up in draft rankings. Maybe you get an offer because of how quick you are, whatever it is. I, I think there's a good reason for us to be obsessed with speed, but by the same token, I've noticed in sports, like if you throw a football game on, it seems like the athlete's ability to start and stop quickly or change direction quickly makes the biggest difference for people. It's not just wide receivers outrunning the cornerback. A lot of times it's them being so shifty and elusive real quick that they catch the other guy off guard and he can't keep up with them. So as far as like speed training and, you know, acceleration, deceleration, change of direction goes, where do you kind of prioritize things yourself as it relates to on-field performance, I guess? Yeah. And now I think the answer to that question hinges very, very strongly on what hat you're wearing. So are you, if you're the sport coach or are you the strength coach or strength and speed coach? If you're the strength and speed coach, more likely than not, you're going to be like, all right, come in. We're going to get your 10 yard faster, your 40 faster, your fly 10, like anything to do with speed that is disconnected from the game that by nature, that coach is going to be incentivized to look more heavily and weigh those more heavily that are independent from game specific stimuli. Um, whereas if I'm the sport coach, I mean, yeah, someone's 40 is important. You have to be fast enough to get in the game. You have to be fast enough linearly to at least play the position. Like you're not going to get a wide receiver in the NFL who ran 5-0 in the 40-yard dash. But once you can hit the requisite speed, once you're running 4-5, 4-6, you're in the game. And it doesn't matter that terribly much, like how much lower you go, especially if you don't have the game speed requisites. And so <clears throat> I think where it does matter is if you have like, you know, I talk about middle of the road athletes, you, you have that middle of the road athlete and their liability is linear speed. It is a big liability for them, but it is kind of interesting. I didn't mention in my history, one thing I've been doing since I've gotten here to Ohio, I've been here for three years is coaching youth sports, coaching youth soccer. And I'll tell you, like, Watching those athletes is funny. Even my first year, we would finish a practice. We'd we're like, hey, let's do a relay race. Let's just everyone get in a line and you'll do a relay race and run to the cone and back. And the kids liked it. They had fun with it. But it's just so funny to watch these kids run in absence of game-specific stimuli. And some of the kids who are real fast in the game, because they could process the game, they could see the ball, they knew where to be, they weren't afraid, they didn't have the emotional anxiety that other kids have when they just go to sprint for no reason, they almost like don't even know how to do it. Like, like it's just funny watching them. Some of them do, but you learn very early on that there's a very distinctive difference between game speed 
and just straight linear speed. And I say this with someone who does have speed training products out there. Like I'm not afraid to say it because I honestly, I would love to coach. Um, I would love to coach like basketball or even other sports as, you know, as my kids grow up, maybe I'll continue coaching soccer to a higher level. Or I mean, by high level, I'm saying like, <laughs> like JV, JV high school or something like I would, I would like coaching that, that low level high school sport at some point, just because, and if I did, it's funny because I would not, almost all of my priority would be on game specific context and stimuli. And I had a good conversation on my own podcast with Michael Zwiefel about that, who was a gym owner who kids came in and trained their speed and agility. And he tried to make it always context specific, other human beings react to the ball. But even then he's just like, ultimately this is will not touch being the coach for the sport because there you are the ultimate manipulator of all the game speed specific things. So a long winded way to say now, if a kid isn't fast and I will say this with my own kids, like, my kids are not, I can already tell they're not fast. They're not the fast kids. They're five and seven. They're middle of the road at speed. They're probably built kind of like 400, 800 runners. Um, speed will not be their weapon. And I, I, I do think or see already, I think it's good that they see me training and that if they want to train speed, they'll have resources to probably go from that mediocre speed person to maybe above, you know, above, above average, let's just say that. And that should be enough, hopefully to get them what they would need for the game itself. But I think that if you listen to a speed coach, depends on which one they, they might tell you everything you want to hear. They'll say, Oh, if you get faster linearly, it's going to help all your game skills. And it's like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> it's way more complex than that. So, it, you know, I, I'll say like, yeah, helping an average athlete get above average in speed, I think is helpful. I think it's a good thing. As with so many things, you know, you just want to focus. It's it's how much do you focus on this versus other elements? And I think that's the magic um, question with all of it. I love that answer. And as you were talking about game speed there, I think that's where, as you mentioned, you kind of bring in some of those other components of it. So how quickly are you off the ball on the snap? How quickly do you stop and then shift a different direction? How quickly do you um, juke one way and end up going the other not so much just your straight top speed, but more of how quickly you do some of those different elements in the sport itself. Um, and I, I guess, you know, just to kind of back up for a second, you know, I view acceleration as how quickly you speed up and deceleration as how quickly you slow down. Um, do you have any other different definitions of those two? And do you see that acceleration and deceleration change at all? Um, when you go from your linear training program to your more game specific kind of element, I guess I'll ask. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's all, it's all context specific. I would agree. Acceleration, just think, yeah, how fast do you run 10 yards, 20 yards? I mean, that defines movement, like good elite athlete athletes, NFL performers, soccer or whatever, they have great ability to 20 meters. Like, and then that's where they differ from like a track athlete. Cause a track athlete a track athlete will just keep going and they won't hit their top speed till 40, 50, maybe even 60 meters if they're elite. And that's just what makes the difference is that a track athlete has that ability to um, technically make the changes and adjustments to get just a little bit more out of their top end later. And they may even be geared more to accelerate a little bit more gradually. 
Uh, I don't think it's like crazy. Like some people would have you believe, oh, if you're going to run a 40, you really got to project and gradually and slowly build. It's like, no, you got to come out pretty quick. <laughs> it's just you do it in a way that's efficient enough that you still can keep building up your speed. Um, so just, I think there's just nuances to that acceleration. A team sport athlete is just really wired and their technique and even their body structure in the sense of their muscle layout will form around the need to be really fast for 10, 20 meters. That's just the sport. And then you could say, okay, well, you know, to be well-rounded, you could go do track and then get that input and that experience of being able to accelerate a little bit longer. If you have a coach who's going to teach you how to do that. I think that's fair with having an athlete that's a little more robust, but to be honest, I don't think it's like, I think some people who are more track types who train speed would have you believe that you must be able to accelerate this way to be fast or good or technical. And I don't agree with that. I think that for the most part, uh, athletes adapt to the stresses that's placed on them and they adapt pretty well. Um, you know, I, and so the, there is a little minutia that you can go into. There's usually low hanging fruits. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with your definition of acceleration and even the deceleration thing though, uh, we could talk about that. Um, <clears throat> I think that it's often built in the system, like change of direction is a deceleration and, and whatnot. I think you, athletes just get a lot of it playing the sport and then to get what they're not getting in sport, that's where you need a little more nuance. Um, so I could, I'd be happy to talk about that too, but, um, that's, I think what ultimately it comes down to is, um, when you want to train a linear speed of 40, that's not sport. What do you do? How do you go about it? How do you make it the most efficient you can? So you can work on what matters. Um, that would be the, the things that you'd be looking for there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point on comparing something more like combine assessment, like a 40 uh, to more of like the track type events, like a 400 or 800. And I know that's an area in particular, you've got some pretty good uh, back history with, I, I see a lot of kids, especially middle school, high school athletes who come to me and they say, you know, should I run track in the off season and get faster for football? And I think that's one of those really interesting conversation topics that we don't often discuss or dive into because, you know, football, most of the time you're running 40, 50 yard bursts. Um, very rarely are you covering the entire length of the football field in a full sprint. Whereas in a sport like track, you almost need to, you know, get to that uh, top speed, top end uh, point there in your running at that 50, 60 meter mark, like you're mentioning in like a hundred meter run, um, which in, you know, if you're running a, if you're trying to get faster at a 40, you're not even hitting top speed in the first 40 yards. So I almost look at track as like a counterintuitive way to train for football. Am I correct in uh, kind yeah, of I, that though? Well, it's, I think there's the idea. It really, to me, the big um, benefit is what you just call same but different. Like um, Dan John talked about that in the book, Easy Strength. It's like, if you look at like where that started with the 50 in the 50s, and I'm sure before then, 50s, 60s, 70s, there's like a... Um, uh, bodybuilder or powerlifter Tommy Kono, who his off season was bodybuilding because it's kind of the same thing, but it's also totally different. And I just look at that for football in the sense of, you know, we do live in this world where athletes are very specialized. They play the same sport year round. Coaches are afraid to give their athlete to another sport. Um, and so you ask, well, what's the benefit of track speed? And I think if you're talking a hundred percent specifically where um, the main specificity is going to come from if it, we're talking acceleration, we're talking, yeah, block starts, maybe if you run the hurdling events. And the thing is, what's different that will raise the level you don't get in football is it's timed 
competitive, fresh, high rest, and on a track surface. So even if we're just speaking of the acceleration phase, those things are similar to football, but you also have more like um, energy behind them, if that makes sense. It's athletes, uh, the, the environment plays a big role in your adaptation. And so if I'm doing acceleration in football and chasing someone down, that's going to be very stimulating, but it's in a very specific manner to football. Um, if I'm racing someone on a track, that's another way to for my body to experience that. And it's also extremely high output. And when your body's forming skills, it can kind of put all these things together. Um, I think it would be probably accurate to say if you go out and do track and you have a good track coach, you could come back to football season, even with that acceleration being a little more robust, you know, and, and I did just say like, you don't need track. I, I don't think the football player with track like needs to be able to do that long, gradual, pretty looking acceleration like track. I just don't think it's a must have to be good at speed but i do think just by virtue of doing different things i think managing a season managing the waves not doing football year round i think it's a nice way to break it up i don't think you absolutely have to but um i think a lot of it just depends on how good the track coaches are like a lot of times i think you know you you hear some like you know tribes of thinking say all oh, football players have to do track and if the track coach is good i would say yes you should it would be a good idea to do track yes but if the track coach is like tempo death march, where it's like their idea of speed training, and I've seen this, is like 12 hundreds or something, then that's probably not what you want to do. Like your football player would be much better off doing something else than that because that's like just kind of, you know, it's killing the beast, that athletic motor. And so, yeah, maybe they should even just do golf or so. I, I don't know, like something that works a different frame of mind, you know, relax if they're the quarterback maybe or the kicker. So, yeah, I would say if the, the track program is relatively decent, I think it would be adv advantageous um, and as well, too, as just not doing the same thing year round. I think a mental break is really huge for athletes these days. We don't think of the psychological much. You know, I think the psychological is almost more of a big deal even than the physical tasks sometimes. Um, so anyways, yeah, I think track's good. Just depends on the coach. Yeah, no, definitely. I love that assessment. And I love how you brought in the psychological component as well, because I've even seen athletes who um, run at different levels or produce different levels of force on like some kind of force based assessment. I don't care if it's, you know, single leg vertical or, um, you know, force plate, whatever, based on their psychological component, I guess you could say in that specific day. So that's a very interesting topic and in how mental state kind of impacts on-field performance as well. You mentioned as you were discussing there that you're not a big fan of like the death marches for improving speed mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the long distance running. That's one of my favorite ones when someone comes in and tells me that they're trying to get faster at their 40s. So they went out and they ran five miles. Um, it, it's always interesting to hear that sort of thing. And I feel like that's something very common in today's day and age. How would you go about training speed um, if you're not going to go like the, I, I guess I want to call it the old school approach, but uh, essentially like a, like a more traditional, not as well put together approach, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. You mentioned old school approach. I would say one old school approach is like the tempo, excessive tempo, you know, just getting tired and those types of things, uh, which is not very effective for getting faster. Another old school approach, though, it's funny. I remember there was a guy uh, who was the assistant softball coach when I was in college. This was like 2003, 2004. And he was like, yeah, I wanted to get faster in my 40s. So I just went and ran 40s as fast as I could every single day. And I got a lot faster. And it's just kind of funny because we, 
you, you know, sometimes you, we think we have it all figured out with modern training. We're like, all right, well, you sprint fast and then rest two to three days and then you can sprint again. I mean, if your mind believes you can do it and you're being specific and it's meaningful, you can do that stuff. Like you could sprint every day, like, and try if you really believed that you, that was the way. And honestly, there's a lot of specificity. There's so much power in that, just doing that. So it, typical speed is a little bit more multilateral. Um, you have a few different ways you can set up your training week, uh, you know, that let's just keep it really simple. And, you know, Charlie Francis was well-known speed coach and his way of going about it was the high low system where instead of sprinting a 40, I mean, you have, to be specific the most specific way is to do the thing and to do it in a really meaningful way so to just go out and run a 40 without timing yourself is not very meaningful because your mind your mind needs something to latch onto. it needs feedback it needs uh, something to push forward and know that you leveled up um, i would love to see a study this would be amazing if they had a group like train the 40 yard dash and a group just ran it and they didn't get their time. <laughs> and then a group runs it and they get their time. I bet you the results would just be astronomical between the two and how much improvement there was. Um, it just shows the power of environment and the power of mind, the mind with those things. So, um, you know, I, I wonder, it makes you wonder too, I suppose that softball coach, I wonder if he like timed himself or what his deal was, <laughs> you know? Um, I just think you need to have something that's motivating or racing somebody. Hey, go, let's go race 40s you know, three times a week and we'll do, we'll race forties for 20 minutes. It can be as simple as that. I think we tend to think that it's gotta be so much more complex. And I'm someone who I will go so quickly and all the layers of the program, my like swinging the other way is just to make it as simple as possible, especially when people are just listening and there's so much information out there. Um, we're oftentimes fed, you know, speed drills and do this, not that. And here's three tips. And I think when you come from the starting point of the body's smart, the body will figure it out pretty well. Um, the body's trying to do the best it can with what it knows and just do something specifically um, and meaningfully, you're going to do pretty well. Um, those are like the baseline points. And so, yeah, doing like something like every other day, just sprint fast, time it, race it, you know, and, and once you do that, you can intuitively be like, you know, Hey, it'd be kind of cool to do instead of like five forties this day, let's do six twenties. Let's do that. You know, like that's just intuitive. Right. And what's crazy is you'd be surprised at how much better you can get without getting complex, uh, without even needing to bring in drills or special type movements. So that's kind of the starting point, um, uh, where I tend to work it, uh, with most of my populations is we sprint twice a week fast, um, we tend to do strength twice a week and we do some sort of recovery day twice a week. That's a template that I've grown more familiar with, but you do not need that template. And so the moral of the story is you're doing something fast and meaningful. Um, you need to recover enough, but if you're sold out enough on it, you could probably even do it every day, which is crazy to say, but <laughs> you know, it'll, it will work forever. If you do it every day though, your, your results will, will taper off quicker. Like if I was just like gung ho on getting faster, I went and ran forties every day. I might get faster for three weeks. And then the fourth week, I, uh, it, that's the, the end. I've exhausted that stimulus. Whereas if I did twice a week, I might be able to get faster for eight, nine, 10 weeks with that stimulus before the results really tapered off. So that's something to look at as well. So that's the basics. Yeah. Um, and build on that and however you like. 
Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned there, the psychological component from before, I'd imagine that kind of feeds into it as well. You know, if your speed training is you racing another individual, then psychologically it's a competition. It's a game. It's engaging. Whereas if you're just going out and running and you've got no one else there, um, you know, the timer's a great, um, great point that you brought up. But if you're not tracking it, if you're not competing, if you're not making it engaging, then I'd imagine it's more difficult to stick with your program, regardless of who you are. And like you mentioned, too, if you go out and you do the same thing every single day for weeks after weeks after weeks, there eventually gets to be a point of diminishing returns. And um, I, I like to say that our mutual acquaintance, Austin Yoakum, is the master of this basically taking some of those simple things and making them more engaging and fun and intuitive that way. Because like you mentioned, there's so much value and simplicity of training that instead of getting all fancy with like, you know, the double band resisted belt here, strap here, uh, kind of setup. not to say there's not value in that at times, but um, you know, there's certainly more value, I think, in the simplicity and ease of access and getting someone to fall in love with the process of getting faster as opposed to chasing all the really cool, fancy, sexy, worthing, sexy, Instagram worthy type stuff, I guess I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say that I think sometimes some of those, the, those drills really their best place. Like when you go through Instagram is to me, it's almost just to draw attention in the warm up. like use them in the warm because novelty drives attention. But to think that this is the thing that makes me faster, the only thing that makes you faster is sprinting with meaning. <laughs> truly, truly. I mean, there's there's gaps to fill in all, you know, all the time, uh, strength gaps especially. But a lot of the technical stuff, like the technical drilling is novelty. It's just, here's some novelty. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'd say we definitely agree with that one. Yeah, definitely. And having the ability to speed up and sprint faster is certainly beneficial. But like we talked about earlier, there's certainly benefit to being able to slow down and decelerate as well and essentially just create a fast eccentric force absorption and then reproduce uh, force in a different direction. So how do you go about hitting your deceleration work or your change of direction work? And where does that kind of fit into your speed programming as well? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that deceleration. I think that this is my opinion. Um, there's people out there who train more regularly as in daily with their team sport populations than I do. From my perspective and who I've talked to, I value change of direction way more than I do deceleration. Like I've seen people do like, you know, how long did it take you to slow down? Like they'll have people sprint and they measure their slow down distance and all that stuff. And I just think, you know, this kind of goes back to the hats a little bit. This is my opinion is I think that some of the stuff that's done is not bad. It's not going to hurt athletes. It's just simply a waste of time. Like if I, in my opinion, just from where I'm at in my experiences, I believe that just doing, just training pure deceleration, like how long it take you to slow down. I think that's just a waste of time. And I just say that because every time you change direction, like if I'm doing a pro agility test or I'm using it for training or like my old uh, basketball high school coach used to make me run a crap ton of like court suicides run to the free throw line and back run to half court and back and and doing that real fast every time you do a change of direction that is a deceleration and it's a reacceleration and it's not um it's not very common that you would accelerate and stop and stop with two feet kind of in the same position that would rarely happen in sport it, it might happen like 
a few times, like I could see basketball closing out on a defender. But if you're in basketball closing out on a defender, you you don't come in with full steam. You usually like you might have five yards you sprint to get there and you close out, you know, and that's but then it's something you're doing in the game anyway, you know, like and there may be. Yeah, maybe situations in tennis or football. I'm sure there's situations, but it's not as common as we would think. It's far more common to come in and cut at an angle or cut and change direction. or And so within that, and we also look at I look at like, well, how are we filling the bucket the athlete does not get if they're if they are doing some of these things in the game or they're changing direction in the game how do i build on that in my practice rather than just maybe even replicating it in my opinion possibly even watered down like to me if i'm a basketball player and i'm sprinting and i'm closing down on a defender and i do and i won't even if i close down a defender i'm not going to lay out with my feet symmetrical they'll be staggered usually and it's usually staggered at the angle maybe i want them to go if we look at meaning, in my opinion, when these things happen in the game, be it change of direction or maybe closeouts, it's actually happening at an emotional intensity that means something. If I ask an athlete to decelerate as fast as they can for no reason, I honestly don't think even the muscle forces are going to be as high because we we operate on meaning. We need to see and integrate, and then the body works at a higher level. I see this all the time. I mean, not like I have youth athletes decelerate practice decelerating for their soccer but when i watch them do anything that carries more meaning the output the increase in output is just crazy and so for me that just would I, moral of the story is i chain i train cod more and a lot of times when i do cod it's got to be timed um, or it's going to be tagged and alternated with another athletic skill um, i view change of direction work as actually a great potentiator um, because most people who train with me, they want to run faster. They want to jump higher. They want to be an overall more powerful, robust athlete. And so a lot of times I see that, um, change of direction has more components built into it. Um, I was actually, this was my nerd nerd moment this morning is I was looking at, I was reading, reading a book on, on Leonardo da Vinci's history and he is a man of many talents, one of which was geometry. And that was, if you were a philosopher back in the day, you were into geometry. And the platonic solids are pretty well known, like these components, like you see them in crystalline formations, you see them in nature, there's like five different, um, there's geometric shapes, and they all correspond to an element like fire, earth, air, water, the the ether, yes, esoteric. And, and but I was interested, because I was thinking about this, I was like, how would you, if you could classify athletic movement structuring from a base level, what would that be? What would your solids be to build any athletic skill? And to me, it's like, Running, sprinting is like the triangular, you know, the the triangular shape. You know, it's the most simple rudimentary. But as you build, you become more complex. And one of the more complex shapes I would actually liken to change of direction. Because within change of direction, you have components of sprinting. You actually have components that are almost like a swing because you have to swing the torso to realign yourself. You have components that work with almost deflecting like jump-based components, like a two-legged jump and a change of direction are actually very similar. They come from the same place. Part of that's why like in watching kids, kids are not good at cutting, doing a 180-degree cut. Like that's so beyond the skill level of a six-year-old. So also is the skill of running and jumping off two legs. They don't have that yet. Those are very, that's a skill that's like a geometric shape that's coming later. And so I view using, I use change of direction to warm up for a sprint, like a 20 meter sprint. I use it to potentiate a jump. So for me, some of that stuff is built into the mainline training because it's a dynamic 
and multifaceted skill that can actually improve other things. And so <clears throat> for me, I use it more there. I also think about, well, everything you're doing in sport, you're getting this in sport. And so if I am going to train it, I need to know how do I train it better? Maybe that's a time, but ultimately I think it's a lot of times it's really just linked to how we're perceiving our space and moving in it as well. If we're talking sports specificity. Um, the last thing I'll say with deceleration, I think that you know, just making things simple. I think the, the simpler you can make a program is a good audit of basically a good wise coach, I think knows what doesn't need to be in a program. I look at like the work of Jay Schrader, who trained Adam Archuleta and, and his program is at its core is very bare bones. And I think with deceleration, you could ask yourself, what could I not get? Okay. What doesn't happen on the field? All right. Uh, drops. Drops don't happen on the field and they're very decelerative. Like if I'm dropping off a box and I look at dropping off a box and decelerating to me is a little more meaningful than just stopping for no reason because it's there's kind of this risk to it. You're being carried with gravity. And if you don't stop yourself, you will fold up. You will hurt yourself. You must stop yourself, you know. And so Jay's system, they would do a lot of drops. Um, Adam Archuleta actually had one of the best, uh, just backstory, Adam Archuleta just destroyed the NFL combine in what, 2002, his total score was like one of the best performances ever, like not just 40 invert, but like pro agility, L drill, bench press, all the stuff was like the best performance to date with everything considered. And they didn't do any deceleration training or anything like that. Granted, Adam didn't do super well in the NFL either. I think that was more perceptual re uh, reasons. They did a ton of drops. So for me, if I'm talking deceleration, I'm probably going to be like, hey, you're already doing it in sport. How can I one-up this in a meaningful way in practice? I would use drops personally. And then I'd use COD to potentiate or change the direction to potentiate other things in the program. So that's just where my mind goes. Um, I'm, I'm always looking to integrate as much as possible. In fact, sometimes I even think, I was like, what's training going to look like in 20 years for sport? In my opinion... The futuristic thought, if we're not robots or cyborgs or half cyborgs by then, it actually would be a lot of the training comes from, if you're familiar with Lila, like the microweights we wear, or that there's like microweights, 100 gram weights you can strategically strap on the body. I actually think most of the training would be that. You just play your sport with your microweight alignment that fits with your low hanging fruits or things you need. You do the minimal amount of strength training, probably some basic isometrics outside of that, and literally you're done. Like it's just, I think it's just going to become way more streamlined, simplified, and to the point. I think in today's culture, we just do a bunch of extra stuff because either the coaches, because part of it's like it's siloed out, you know, you have the speed and strength coach who has no bearing on the perceptual side and doesn't like pay attention to that that much. Some of them do. So I just think the more integrated all these things get, the less we're going to do outside the sport, unless it comes time to play an entirely different sport for psychological reasons. Right. So. I'm right. kind, of, kind of going off in the weeds, but <laughs> thanks for bearing with me, Dan. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool points you just brought up there. Um, kind of working backwards, so you just brought up the microweights. Um, that's something that I think is kind of interesting. I think of it in uh, analogy to like a tire almost and perfectly balancing and aligning a tire. Essentially, you're using the microweights to more balance and align your body and how it moves. So instead of focusing on, you know, horsepower, building a bigger engine, whatever you want to call it, you're moving in a more effective, efficient manner kind of thing. So I certainly think that's an interesting topic. And I'm certainly excited to see how training evolves over the next 5, 10, 15 years. I love how you brought up the importance of the drops, because like you said, you kind of have to 
uh, force of fast eccentric against the force of gravity pulling you downwards. Uh, and if you don't, you fold up. So I love those and I use those a lot from a rehabilitation standpoint uh, with athletes. We have changes things too, by the way. Sorry, I didn't put that. <laughs> so yeah, the important yeah, yeah. I was he, talking about high performance athletes who yes. aren't in return play. So yeah put that in there <laughs> yeah yeah it definitely changes things but um you know i certainly think that there's a lot of value and you know placement for that sort of thing um you know i don't go crazy with the drops though like i'm not having people drop off of like a four or five foot yeah. box or anything like that um i think there's a point with anything where you start to get diminishing returns and um you know if we're just chasing like drop height then it's a question of me of you know what am i what am i truly doing for this person in front of me right now um and i love your point too on you know essentially instead of training just deceleration let's train it in conjunction with other things and kind of integrate our model into more of something that matches what an athlete's going to do on the field instead of one thing in isolation because it's extremely rare for one thing to happen in isolation when we're talking about human movement sprint change direction and that sort of thing. Um, so I love the integrated model. You did mention that, you know, you try and see improvement um, with that over time. What metrics are you looking at as far as improvement goes? Are you mostly going based on the time uh, component or are you looking at like a movement quality piece? And how do you feel like movement quality fits into the world of change of direction? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I just will go back to, I do think, deceleration and hopefully this can draw some um context especially to if people are listening who are therapists and things like that mm -hmm. i definitely think rehab return to play like yes the ability to i'm sure there's more um measured and monitored uh, change of direction deceleration ability and repetition and rehearsal there to me it's like it's just layers though like you're always going to graduate you know and ultimately right. that's what i think people don't understand is a lot of times people keep someone in you could just say keeping someone in sixth grade when they need to be out of sixth grade, they need to go. And you could say sixth grade is basically the ability to, you know, stop and decelerate without pain and get into a certain knee angle at a certain rate of speed. But once you are good at that, you don't need to train that anymore. And every, and your sport will train it. And that's the thing is people, once you're back playing, your sport is now training that thing. And then the strength coach or the speed coach needs to say, am I really training that thing better than it's being trained in sport? And I think that's the question that doesn't get asked. So then it does become a point of quality. And this is where there's um, a little bit of argument. And this is where I'll say too, I, and, and I also look at this in light of my own personality. I do not like messing with the minutia of train, change of direction because to me it is boring. And I don't think, I don't think it does as much as people, people think it does because Michael Zwiefel has shown this, who again, he, he's a football coach at Wisconsin lacrosse now and was a private sector uh, trainer for a long time. He's part of the emergence motor learning group, um, super into long-term development and skill acquisition. And one of the things that Michael had said, and this really stuck out to me, and I've seen it as well, is athletes, when you have an athlete just do a cut, like, hey, hey run to the cone and go do a 90 degree cut to the right. And you video them and you see how they do it. Then you have them go and they're gonna, uh, let's say a player is coming at them well, well, they're running to the cone and that player is going to veer left or right and they have to cut and follow them. When the player reacts to the stimuli, their mechanics change. And then that asks you, and, and this is my thing too, is I will always defer to what the human body does in play versus a theoretical model. 
Because I think that's just a big thing is so much of what we do right now is hung up on these models, but we're very low in observation. It's almost like this, and maybe it worked for one or two athletes. People just take that as the absolute truth, and then they model everything. Um, they, they basically paste that on all athletes and all movement. But what I found, and especially this came about from my mentorship under a Darian Barr, who is the best way to describe a Darian is someone whose entire mental abilities and hardware went into the art of observing movement and and seeing things that no one else sees and seeing the differences between athletes and these overarching features of their styles. And so when you see that, you realize that all these models from the 80s are actually more or less just dogma. And then when you start to watch athletes change direction, you see not Oh, where where can I fix this person? It's like, no, what is their strategy? Why are they moving like this? And a lot of times the liabilities are actually not technical, like they need a coach to say, no, put your foot here. It's more structural. It's more their skeleton, their alignment. You, know, you could say compression expansion model where their muscles are tight, long, loose, whatever your model is. Usually liabilities are coming from there first and then anything technical is usually second. It's not, it, to me, it's not the top of the priority list. The top of the priority list is shore up the structural and, and, and integrated body as a functioning unit, let the body act in sport, perceive and react, watch how it does it. Then, then maybe you could go into, is this person doing this wrong? But that's so low on my totem pole, I actually don't even get there. And I just, I'm just very wary of like nocebo, like, like telling an athlete to do something that they actually were doing maybe right. And so I'm not, this isn't to say that, that those people who try to coach change the, that there's no value. I don't think that's the case. I also think there's sports where there's more value to that. Um, like Tony Villani is a guy who I think he's brilliant and he does a lot of work with football players and a lot of footwork stuff. And in talking to him, it strikes me that, like an offensive player in football could benefit more from a lot of these pre-planned step patterns because it kind of fits more with how they run routes and what's the most optimal way to do these. Um, and then, but he'll also say basketball, like a defensive player learns a lot just from playing basketball. It's judging space. And a lot of times your movement evolves to the needs of basketball. So um, yeah, just all that being said, sorry, again, long-winded. And I say this just because I've talked to so many people in my podcast and I've thought about this Um but I would say, yeah, first is the structural capabilities of an athlete, stuff you get in the gym, the weight room, function, you could call it functional training. Second is perception and reaction. How are you perceiving your environment? The lowest thing on the totem pole is actually telling someone how to change direction, how to decelerate. I think that's the way. And, and to be honest, I would only do that if I had watched hundreds of hours of film to really validate that this is indeed the way you need to do it and not this way. Because that happened to me with track. Like it took me hundreds of hours of film to tell someone to to feel comfortable saying, hey, I do think you need to change this in your running because that is still the later thing I will tell somebody because the human body is so brilliant. You really have to be confident you're doing a better job than the athlete's brain. And I think a lot of times coaches just, oh yeah, my coach told me this. So of course it's right. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the way the human body operates is pretty intelligent and you need to start there. So I hope that makes sense with how I kind of triage that out. Yeah, definitely. You know, and you know, I thought I thought your coach knew everything, though, Joel. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's funny. I've seen this a lot as well, where people try to cue certain things, and they believe that you know, external verbal cueing is just going to magically, quote unquote, correct the way someone moves, assuming there was a movement deficit in the first place. 
I actually had this conversation with someone on the phone this morning uh, where essentially the individual was telling me that his coach told him he's running weird and his running form needs work and he needs to go to PT to work on his running form. And I told him, look, straight up and honest, without ever seeing you run before, you coming to me an hour, hour and a half a week at most um, is not going to change the way you've run for 17 plus years at this point. Um, and I, I think that you're spot on in the you know statement that we have to look at movement and uh, determine what it's trying to tell us. So, you know, that knee valgus angle that someone's presenting with the, when they change direction, that might not necessarily be a bad thing. They might just have a crazy cue angle and they're predisposed to more internal rotation. By the same token, maybe it's their glutes are super weak and they're trying to get a better moment arm to produce force from and they're internally rotating to uh, you know, present a more physically advantageous moment arm for the glute to fire from through rotation. Um, but if you don't observe and then assess what the person in front of you is trying to tell you, then you're essentially just making all these assumptions and shooting into the breeze and you're going to find some stuff that works and some stuff that doesn't work. And you're going to end up quite frustrating yourself by, you know, just kind of guesstimating your way through it, I guess I'll say. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting because people who are coaches, I'm sure therapists as well. It's almost like, it's just funny because we we're thrown in the system where it's like, you are expected to coach, to say things. You are expected to you be the guide or, you know, I, I like to call it a facilitator. You're facilitating an athlete's journey. But I think if we just started from the rules of, hey, the athlete's body is really brilliant. Let it problem solve. Here's the rules of letting it problem solve. Here's where to step in. Like, that's not the first thing you learn in school. Like, that's the last thing if you even cover it, you know? And so I just think that a little under more understanding of yeah, the body and observation and why it's doing what it's doing is a really helpful starting point because it does take the pressure off a coach too. And you can focus on other things too. Like you could just focus on, hey, do we have a good training environment here? Does the athlete feel safe? Do they feel encouraged and supported? Um, is Are they excited about the training and the constraints we have laid out today? Uh, more than feeling like you have to come in there and biomechanically optimize everything. That comes through a lot of experience and it's not something that actually even has a clear of an instruction manual as I think a lot of us would think that it does. I mean, I even find myself what I tell athletes, honestly, almost it, it still has the same basic structure, but some of the nuances are different from athlete to athlete, session to session, just because it's like, no, this is what this athlete needs to hear. And it didn't come from an instruction book. It's like, this is something that I can say because I have, you know, the years of experience and my intuition says this athlete needs to know this today, you know? And so it, it isn't as clear cut as we would like it. It's not as scalable. It's not as viral, you know, it's kind of the, but it's also cool because it's like, you know, you sit in it long enough and you observe enough and eventually your intuition will tell you that right thing at the right time. But that's just coaching. That's a good, that's an experienced coach in any field. Yep. Yeah, definitely. You certainly uh, learn through the experience and what you go through on the day-to-day basis there. Joel, I feel like we've talked about so many different things as it relates to acceleration, deceleration, speed, change direction. Uh, we really covered a lot of different things today. Is there any closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything we didn't quite touch on that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, I feel like there was I feel like I was going to say something in response to whatever whatever our last point was, but it's honestly kind of slipped my mind. So no, I, I thank you for having me on, Dan. I appreciate you know you taking the time to have me on the show and and bearing with some of my 
I, I think I, I hate like rambling, but sometimes it's like, there's a lot of thoughts because I talk to a lot of people and I see a lot of viewpoints and I'm always trying to make sense of you know, all the sides of things. And so sometimes it comes out in a little bit of a, I wouldn't call it a tirade, but I, 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 I know what it's like to be on your end of the microphone <laughs> with that. So I appreciate you uh, bearing with me. Yeah, for sure. Joel, I really appreciate your time. For people who want to find out more about you or the Just Fly Performance Podcast and that sort of thing, where can they find you at? Sure. Um, if you do probably common, um, if people on social media, it's just Just Fly Sports uh, for Twitter and Instagram and then Just Fly Performance Podcast. Um, there's been quite a few good discussions on the agility ones there. There was quite the debate with Michael Zwiefel, Jay DeMeo, and I believe Jeff Moyer. If people want, people want to check that one out. So yeah. Um, yeah. People can find me there. Definitely. We'll link to all of that in the description below too. That way, if you didn't quite catch it, you can just click there and see everything that Joel is up to. Joel, really appreciate your time today. Thanks again, man. All right. Thank you, Dan. Hey, everyone. I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R X. So D Braun R X at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.